Let's open our Bibles, please, to the 27th Psalm. The 27th Psalm. We might call this a Psalm of Hope for David. A Psalm of Hope. He sustains his faith by the power of God and his love to the service of God. And he does this by prayer. In the first three verses, David states his needs. His needs. David's needs. And he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. So, he states his needs in this psalm. Notice that the language of David is a lot of times like our language, and the language of the church and individuals in it, and even of the Lord. We'll find that some of these things apply later on when he talks about false witnesses and etc. rising up against him, that there were false witnesses that came up against Jesus too. You know, this psalm of hope is well suited for those who are in tried uh, circumstances and who've learned that in the midst of all trials to lean upon the arm of the Lord instead of upon the arm of the flesh. Sometimes we try to lean upon man instead of upon God. This is a psalm that, as we said in these first three verses, tells us of David's needs. I want you to notice the very first verse again. The Lord is, is my light and my salvation. Now, he didn't say the Lord will show me light and show me the way of salvation, though he does both. But he says the Lord is my light and my salvation. He is our light and our salvation. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119-105, let me give you this, Psalm 119 and verse 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So God's Word shows us the way. And it says in 130, The entrance of thy words giveth light. Someone says, Well, I wish, I wish God would be my light. Well, this Psalm 19 and verse 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. Now, notice it didn't say, The Word of God giveth light, but the entrance of thy words giveth light. You have to receive them and be enlightened by them, it giveth understanding unto the simple. You see, a lot of people just see the outside of it or read it or let someone quote it, and it doesn't enter in. So for it to enlighten you, it has to become a part of you. And David's need was light. All of our need is light. The Bible says that Jesus is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So we need light. We need the light of God's word. And we need the light that comes from God. And we need him as the light for us. By the way, in that first chapter of John's gospel, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now listen carefully. In him was light. And the light was the uh, the light in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And it says, "And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not." This is like a chaotic condition of a human heart, just like the chaos in the world in the beginning, and or, or back in the book of Genesis, not in the beginning, but 
in the book of Genesis, we read of it in the first chapter, where the world was in a chaotic condition and was in darkness on the face of the deep. And the heart of man, the hearts of men, are in darkness. And unless God's light shines in there, it says the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Have you ever marveled at the fact that in a group of people, say 200 people, some are enlightened and some are still in darkness? Because they have not let God's light shine into their hearts. And the Bible says, Paul says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine into them. You see, if God's light of the gospel doesn't shine into that sin-darkened heart, nothing happens. That's why all these efforts of men are, are uh, proven to be failures. God has to do something inside of an individual to change that individual before he really is changed. And you and I can go around and try to uh, reform people and try to get them to do good and do right and say, now look, this will get you in trouble. But unless God enlightens their heart, nothing happens. Or they may temporarily turn over a new leaf and Two weeks later, they're right back in the same old track because there's nothing inside changed. But when God changes the heart of an individual, He changes his whole life along with it. He changes the whole thing. The Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And I think that's where we make our biggest mistake in dealing with people. We think that we can change and, and give that life that only God can give. And it reveals the fact that we are sinners. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended is not. Notice, note, he said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Salvation is of the Lord. And he is called Jesus, Savior. And he is the one that does the saving and is the Savior himself. And then we find the strength. Look at this next thing. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If God is your light and God is your salvation, He's the one that not only saves you, but the word salvation implies deliverance as well. He delivers you. And protection, salvation implies protection. And all uh, many other things, That there are many ramifications to salvation. But the thing about it is, the next statement says, Whom shall I fear? If all of this is going for you, what do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to fear? The Bible says, The fear of man bringeth a snare. Uh, the Bible says, Jesus said time and time again, Fear thou not. And we're taught in the Bible all the way through not to fear. Not to fear, but to trust. Uh, John says in the first epistle of John, he says, perfect love casteth out fear. He says, fear hath torment. How many times when you're afraid, you're tormented by that fear. But it says, perfect love casteth out fear. Fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Some people say, well, that's presumption. No, it's not. It's trusting. It's trusting God. Say, Lord, I can't do anything about it. I'm depending on you. I'm not going to be afraid because you're in charge. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And he is our strength in the time of fear. The next statement says, uh, the, strength, he is, the Lord is the strength of my life. 
And then let, notice something else. Uh, of whom shall I be afraid? Here you uh, again have the statement. Of whom shall I be afraid? God offers protection. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. The wicked are like cannibals. They come to eat up our flesh, so to speak, in uh, a figure, so to speak. But who are we going to fear our enemies? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me, came on me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. So we have divine protection. This protection comes from God. Look in the Gospel of John chapter 18. Let me read a few verses. 18 verses 5 through 8. Notice what it says here. John 18 verses 5 through 8. Well, let's read verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? This was when he was betrayed in the garden. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am, or I am he. Notice the word he's in italics. You have your Bible? The word he is in italics. He says, I am. And that word caught them as if he was the one that sent Moses. And Moses said, whom shall I say? Uh, who, who will I say has sent me? And God says, say, I am. This was Jehovah's name. Of old, and Jesus says, "I am," and they well understood what he, his claim was: divinity. His claim was preexistence. His claim was God. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon then as he had said unto them, notice it says again in your Bible, "I am." Doesn't say I am He. The word He is in italics. He says, "I am." They went back backward and fell to the ground. By the way, let me stop and explain. When I say it's in italics. The, the writers of the King James Version always put any script, any word that they added that was not in the original in italicized letters so that we would well know that it was added. That's honest translation, isn't it? It's a little different than a lot of them doing today. I love the King James Version because I know that these men were honest and they were very careful not to put anything in the scripture that they didn't know exactly what it was talking about. And that it was a translation of a word and of what they had in the, con in the text, the original text. And so uh, that's why I point out the italicized word. Sometimes it explains a little bit. Sometimes it doesn't do as much for the scripture. Sometimes uh, it really does help a great deal. And sometimes it would have been better if they had left it out. And when you get over in other passages, and I can explain that to you sometime when we have at length to go into it. But right now, let's continue with the thought. We're talking about protection. And down in verse 6, uh, verse 7, it says, Then ask he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am, or I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Now, even though they were going to take Jesus, Jesus said, let these go their way. And he protected those that were with him by his power to release all except himself. Now, they could have very well taken all of them. But Jesus gives us protection. God gives us protection. And by the way, if you'll notice back in our text, now, always hold your place where we're studying in the psalm. Notice in uh, verse 3, it says, Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. David's need was courage, too. Courage. What do we have? 
What were his needs? Light and salvation and strength and protection and courage. This is a cluster of things. By the way, they're five in number. Five is a good symbol of grace, isn't it? A good number for grace. And when you have all these things, if you have God as your light and God as your salvation and God as your strength and God as your protector and God is the one that gives you courage against your enemies, what more could you ask? And Hebrews 13, verse 6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. If we have God on our side, the Bible says, If God be for us, who can be against us? There are multiplied numbers of scriptures that we could give you. Psalm, I mean, Isaiah 41, verse 10 says, I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That's uh, Isaiah 41, verse 10. And then let's notice not only David's needs as is stated in verses 1 through 3, but let's notice David's desire, David's desire stated in verses 4 through 6. Let's read verses 4 through 6 and then come back and, and talk about it. It says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Look back in verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord. You know, sometimes we get too many things. On her mind. One thing, he says, have I desired of the Lord. He says, I'm going to set the Lord before my, my face. Uh, his will, His way, his, his tabernacle, His dwelling place. I want more than anything, the Lord, to be ahead of everything. And you know, if we put one thing before us, we can very uh, much easier reach our destination, our goal. One thing, he says, have I desired of the Lord. Sometimes we do not desire the right things. We do not seek after the right things. He says, that will I seek after. In the New Testament, we have several indications. If you remember uh, Martha and Mary, and Jesus had come to their house to have a meal. And the Bible says that Martha was cumbered about much serving. And Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now listen. Two things that are important. It was, it was wonderful for Martha to be concerned about fixing the meal. And then on the other hand, it was uh, in, in some respects a little bit showing the one side of Mary that she just uh, wanted to put the word first and neglect the service at that time. And there are two, two extremes. But what Jesus said, he said, Martha, Martha, thou art cumbered about much serving. Now, he didn't say it wasn't necessary to serve, but he, the cumbered. And then he said much serving. Sometimes we want too much serving, don't we? We pay too much attention to the temporal things. Thou art, thou art cumbered about much serving. Cumbered and much are two things. He didn't say uh, anything about her being willing to serve. But thou art cumbered. Made it a, a real problem about much serving. And he says, Mary has chosen that, that good thing which shall not 
take, be taken away from her. He says, yet one thing. Now listen carefully. Jesus said, one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good thing which shall not be taken away from her. One thing. And what was she doing? What was the needful thing? She sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Remember, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. Sometimes we say, Oh, it's so necessary for us to fix, have our meals right on time. You know, some people, if the clock strikes 7.30 and 12 o'clock and 5.30 or 6, boy, it has to be there. Don't worry about that. Sometimes we, it's, it's all right to eat three meals a day if you want to. Better if you just eat two, but, and I just eat one. I start about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. I quit about midnight. <laughs> but anyway, what we're talking about is sometimes we get things out of out of kilter, don't we? We put too much emphasis upon the physical and material and the temporal. When Jesus said one thing is needful, and if people would be as much concerned about hearing God's word as they are about their physical food. My, what a spiritual house we would have. They would be well fed and they would be strong in the Lord because strength comes from God's word. Job of old says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I've counted the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. And so we find that uh, one thing, one thing have I desired. Let's think of that one thing again. In the New Testament also we have another place. Remember that uh, blind man in John chapter 9? And they came after he had been healed and the Lord had given him sight. And they said, well, now this man must have been a sinner. He says, now, well, you know, and he wasn't, he did this uh, for you. And, you know, we don't believe in all that this man did. And where did he come from? Do you know anything about Jesus? They were asking the blind man. He says, well, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. But he says, one thing I know. What was it? That whereas I was blind, now I see. He said, I don't know about that. You can argue about whether he's a sinner. That's up to you. You can argue about whether the cure came from the right person or in the right way and all that stuff. But he said, one thing I know, I now see. And so if we know something, and then Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but uh, not only the incident with Jesus and Martha and Mary, but the incident with uh, the blind man, but Paul himself said, this one thing I do. This one thing. Forgetting those things which are behind. And reaching forth to those things that are before. He says, I press toward the mark. For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So sometimes we look back. You know, Paul says, I'm going to forget the past. What good does it do to worry about your past sins? If you put them under the blood of Christ and confess them, they're all gone. He says they've forgotten them. What are you doing Worrying about them. If God isn't even going to remember them, what are you doing worrying about them? He says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. God said, as far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove their transgressions. He hath removed our transgressions from us. The Bible says he's blotted them out as a thick cloud. He's buried them in the depths of the sea. And so what are we doing worrying about them? If they're under the blood of Christ and he has paid the full sacrifice by dying on the cross to redeem us and to cover our sins with his atonement. And then we sit and worry, well, you know, I made this mistake, you know, a year ago, last year, day before yesterday, week ago. 
You know, I made this terrible thing. Oh, I'm so down. Because, you know, I don't know if the Lord will forgive me. Well, He's already forgiven you if you've confessed it. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's our business to confess and it's God's business to forgive. He's better at His job than we are. He's better at forgiving than we are confessing. Most of the time we don't confess enough, do we? We'll fess up, everything will be all right. So that's the trouble. We do our part, and, and God does His part. You can't do what He can do. He's the only one that can do the forgiving, and He's told you and I what to do. So, one thing, Paul says, I'm going to forget the things that are behind, press toward the things that are before, to the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what was it that the psalmist desired? He says, One thing have I desired of the Lord. Hold your place in the psalm where we're studying. Verse 4. 27 verse 4, always hold your place there, because we'll try to come back and go down the line, word for word, verse by verse. It says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What did he want? To dwell in the house of the Lord. Not only all the days of his life, but you know there's a house in heaven too. There's an eternal house. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. Psalm 23 says that I might dwell in the house, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 23rd Psalm. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, For we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. If this is all the house that you ever had, you'd be in much trouble because it's going to be uh, falling apart one of these days. And Go back to the dust from whence it came. But it says, We have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And the Bible says to be absent from this body or this house, this tabernacle of clay, is to be present with the Lord. And he says that that house is eternal in the heavens. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And then what else did the psalmist want? That I may dwell... In the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And, and to inquire in his temple. Every verse has something. This is his desire. This verse has about five or six things I'd like to point out. Not only to dwell in God's house, but to behold the beauty of the Lord. In John 17 verse 24, in Jesus' great high priestly prayer, listen carefully now. Jesus said, Father, I will. Now, he was praying concerning all believers. He says, Father, I will that all those, all those whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. He was going back to the Father. That they may behold my glory. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now, then that is his prayer for us. That we may behold his glory. And by the way, he didn't say part of them. He didn't say those that are real good and some that's not quite as good and not going to make it. He said, all those whom thou hast given me. You know, people believe, have you ever heard people that believe in a split rapture? Only the very best were going up. The rest of us are going to be left behind. And I include my number and the rest of us because I'm not quite that good. But anyway, they believe in a split rapture. Jesus said, all those. He didn't say part of them. No such thing as a split rapture. Except it's going to happen in a split second. That's the only split about it, isn't it? And all those, he says, all those whom thou hast given me. The Bible says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. 
already and does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be. You know, God's word is so definite, isn't it? It doesn't say maybe we'll be like him. When he appears, we might go to be with him. You ever heard such language? And that's the kind of the preaching that a lot of people get. Well, now, yeah, you're saved, but you just can't be that sure. The Bible tells you you can be real sure. It says we can know. I know whom I have believed, Paul said. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And so the Scriptures do not leave people in doubt. By the way, a lot of our uh, good friends, a friend that we had prayer for a while ago, our brother uh, of the Assembly of God, a lot of preacher brethren of different denominations that used to uh, frown upon uh, the thought of security of the believer getting to believe it now and preach it really. And I, I admire them for it because it, it takes a little bit to break the trend that they've been under. And even some Church of Christ are believing that and preaching it. And they kind of getting on him for that too. But anyway, he's preaching the Word. And that's what he ought to do. That's what you're called to do. And you know, the Bible is not doubtful. If it was always giving us doubts and fears and maybes and ifs and but and well, if, well, you know, you wouldn't know what to say, but it gives us some assurance, doesn't it? And I'm thankful that it does. And David's desire to dwell in God's house, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And then it says, notice this, and to inquire in his temple. We need inquirers, do we not? The Bible says in James 1, 5, if any... Uh, among you, any of you lack wisdom, what, what is he to do? Let him ask of God. Inquire. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. And it says, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. The one man that wavers, he says, let not that man think that he will receive anything from God. So believing that God will give you the wisdom you need. That doesn't mean to be a smart aleck or anything like that. That means to have divine wisdom and guidance. Oh, man, I, I talked to Brother Randy. We get talking once in a while about some of the preacher brethren. They, they just so cocky. They, you think that they, they're just ready to sprout wings and fly on to heaven. There's none of us that good. I haven't seen one that good yet. And yet a lot of them, they, they put on that kind of front. You know, they're just so holy and so good and so righteous and so big and their church is so big. And brother, just look at me and look what I've done. Well, when we get there, we'll see who gets what. Because the Lord, you know what the Lord said? When, when He said, listen carefully. Boy, our time's getting gone. I'm not near through with this. But you know what the Lord said? He said, in that day, they'll say, Lord, when did we see you do this and, and that? Hunger and fed you. He says, inasmuch you've done it to the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. They were surprised that they were the ones that rewarded. Did you know that? going to be a lot of surprises in heaven. We're going to find that a lot of the fellows that thought they were so big wasn't this big after all. And a lot of the fellows thought they didn't amount to anything. They might uh, actually get a reward or a crown. So let's don't try to judge it now or work it out now and put on the front. Let's go on with this. It says in uh, this verse, verse 5, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. The pavilion's a tent or a uh, covering a tent. Let's use that word. It's simpler. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. 
He'll hide me in the time of trouble. Isn't that when we need hiding? We need to be hidden in the Lord's pavilion. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, that your life, that you're dead and your life, listen carefully. This is a paradox, isn't it? You're dead and your life, well, how can I be alive if I'm dead? You're dead, but your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, well, I thought it was dead. He's our life, though. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. See the word of Scripture? You can't make that mean anything else. You can't twist it around and put ifs and ands and buts in there. It says, if you then be risen, let's get the whole thing. If you, been, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And so, that's, I believe that's starting with verse 1 through 4. But uh, you get that in your mind as to what uh, God does for you. He hides you in his pavilion. The secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. Now then, let's notice something else. It says, and he shall set he shall set me up upon a rock. He shall set me up upon a rock. That means a firm foundation. In Psalm 40, verse 2, it says, He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, the pit of sin, the pit of destruction. A pit of noise, as you find in the Scripture sometimes. In fact, that's what the Hebrew says. A pit of noise, like the water running down into a dungeon, and you hear the drippings, and a pit of noise and constant disturbance. And he brought me out of the miry clay, filled with clay and mud, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And who is that rock? That's the Lord, isn't it? To have a firm foundation... The Bible says other foundation can no man lay than that is laid. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, listen carefully. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. The ones he set upon a rock. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. All right, let's go on and see what we find in verse 6. And now shall mine... Head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Look at this. God promises victory, doesn't he? Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Look at that. David's gratitude in verse 6. Offered in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. The Bible tells us that we're to offer by him, therefore, Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, by him, that is by Christ, because he is the one that is our great high priest. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Somehow we don't realize how much we have to be thankful for. So he was to offer sacrifices of praise, an expression of joy. And it was to be expressed in song. Look. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. What does that remind you of? Let's see if we can find it in the book of, of uh, Ephesians, chapter 5, 
and verse 19. It says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the music of the soul. That's the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you'll notice, it says in verse 18, this is Ephesians 5, verse 18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I've given you this before. If you have your Bible open, notice that's not the end of the sentence. That's a semicolon. It says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Semicolon. I'll point out the punctuation so you'll get the flow of the message. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, another semicolon. Not through. Sometimes we end the sentence before it's time. Sometimes we just get a little part of a scripture and fail to use the rest of it. Look at this now. It says, then verse 20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the end of the sentence. Another semicolon. And then, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Period. Look, from verse 18, verses 18 through 21, before you complete the whole statement. You see that? So that the person in verse 18 that's filled with the Spirit will be joyful, verse 19. He will be thankful, verse 20. And he will be submissive, verse 21. You see, a lot of times we associate being filled with the Spirit with a lot of other things than what we find here. What's he to be? A a Spirit-filled person will be joyful. And he'll be thankful. And he'll be submissive. He won't be real flawny or filled with pride. That's what the Scripture says there. You just follow it and read it and study it. And it doesn't complete the thought until you get submitting yourself to one, one to another in the fear of God. Submissiveness. Submissive. Okay, let's go on with this now. Back in our Psalm 27 and verse uh, verse 7 now. It says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Now notice, David's prayer was to hear. He says, Hear, O Lord. Have you ever come to the place that sometimes you say, Lord, hear me? He says, Hear me when I cry with my voice. It was a prayer... Uh, of, of crying out to God. Sometimes we do not really pray prayers, we say prayers. But you know, I believe most of us here, and I just really am blessed when Brother Walker, Brother Hawks, Brother Ron, the brethren here in the church pray. I know it, it comes from their heart, and they pray the prayer for people. And everyone is a, is a, is a special subject of that prayer. And they're born on the wings of faith. And in the arms of love. And so that's the kind of prayer we need. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. It says, Have mercy also upon me and answer me. And it's a prayer for mercy, isn't it? And it's based upon God's invitation. Look at the next thing. Look at this. It's based upon God's invitation. It says, When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. God invited, and he says, I answered it was a prayer for mercy. It was a plea for God's attention. He says, God, listen to me. And it was based upon God's invitation. God invited him to do it. Sometimes we do not realize that God wants us to come to him in prayer. When thou saidest, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. He says, if that's what God wants, that's what I will do. How many of us are that obedient to the things of God? 
And he made a request for continual fellowship. He says, Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. Hide not thy face uh, far from me. What hides God's face from us? He says, Your iniquities, uh, Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. He says, Your sins, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, so that He has hidden His face. And that's all that will hide His face. If we confess our sins, His face is open toward us. In Isaiah 55, let me read something for you. Isaiah 55, it says uh, in verse 6, Seek ye the Lord uh, while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. And let Him return unto the Lord. And He will have mercy upon Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon So God wants us to seek His face and turn from all wicked ways. And that's our business to do that. And we're invited to do it. When thou saidest, seek ye my face, my heart said. Does it apply to our heart? When God says, come on, turn to me, does it apply to your heart? He says, thy face, Lord, will I seek. A direct and immediate response. Isn't it a great thing when God speaks to you to go? Just like old Philip, you know, God spoke to Philip. He was down there and preaching a revival in Samaria. And God says, Philip, you go to the place Gaza called Desert. And you go there. And Philip went there. And the Spirit spoke to him and said, Go join thyself to this chariot. And we're in the Ethiopian eunuch under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, was riding in this chariot. And the Bible says, And immediately, he didn't waste any time. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. If we were as ready to answer God as we are someone else, wouldn't that be a great thing? If God says, do this, do it. And it's our business just to do it. Leave the consequences, the results to him. And then he says, leave me not. He said he wanted continual fellowship. Leave me not. God says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He says, O God of my salvation. He repeats that again in verse 9. Let's get on down to verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. David knew the Lord's love was greater than that of parental love. Parental love is great, but it's been known to fail. But God's love is never failing. He knew that even though, and this is the, the, the extreme, isn't it, for father and mother. He says, if when father and mother forsake me, and this is very unusual because fathers and mothers love children. And they should. They should more so than we see it sometimes in our day and age. But anyway, if that fails, he says, the Lord will take me up. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And then he goes on. In the next few verses, let me give you this real quickly. Verses 12, I mean verses 11 through 14. David realized his greatest needs. We talked about his needs in verses 1 through 3. His needs were light, salvation, strength, protection, courage. Now then, David realized his greatest needs, and you can underline them. We'll come back and discuss them. Underline the word teach in verse 11. Underline the word deliver. Well, no, underline the word lead in verse 11. Teach and lead. And then underline the word, word deliver in verse 12. And then uh, underline uh, I had fainted in verse 13. And underline verse uh, 14, uh, wait, the word wait. 
David realized that, first of all, that he needed teaching. He says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. He realized he needed teaching to learn. Teach me thy way. Jesus said, Learn of me. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. You know, there's a lot of people who do not realize their need for teaching. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so, when we learn of the Lord. And then he says, And lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. We need divine leadership, and we need in a plain path. Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Romans 8, verse 14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We need to be spiritually led. Then in verse 12, he needed divine protection. He says, Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I don't have time to give you the references and turn to them, but false witnesses rose up against Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 59 through 62, and false witnesses will rise up against many of God's people some of the times. Sometimes you'll have people that will absolutely just lie about you. And you just well face the fact. In spite of what you try to do to, to try to live right and do right, people will actually just lie. You see, men do lie. The Bible says all men are liars. And we need to be have this put away from us. Remember I quoted one time to you, and just bear with me, that the psalmist said, Remove far from me vanity and lies. He didn't say he didn't say remove me far from vanity and lies, as if vanity and lies out here and he's over here. But he says, Remove far from me, they're here, move them away from me. Vanity and lies. And <clears throat> So let's notice, uh, he needed divine protection. And verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He needed encouragement. And we would all faint unless we had encouragement from the Lord and some evidence of divine favor. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David encouraged himself in the Lord. Let me read this one for you. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. It says, And David was greatly distressed... For the people spake of stoning him, listen carefully, uh, because the soul of all the people was grieved. They were all mad at David. They had a lot of troubles. They blamed David for it. All the uh, people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And there's times when you're being blamed for everything in the world, and that's what they were doing for David. Everything wasn't going right, and they said, David, it's your fault. And what did he do? All the people, the soul of all the people was displeased. He was in great distress, and he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I used to sing a song when I was in those kind of trials in the ministry. A little song it goes, and it's not a little song. It's an old hymn that says, "Stand by me in the midst of persecution. Stand by me in the midst of tribulation. Stand by me in the midst of faults and failures. Stand by me." And uh, some of you know that song. It's a wonderful old hymn. 